one of the things that we like to do as a family, multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day, is we make meal time together as a family a priority. We've got a lot of young kids. We've got a really busy family. We're going a lot of different directions and seemingly all of the time. But when we come together, we sit down at our dining room table, sometimes a little more informal, where we'll have breakfast for dinner. Anybody think there's anything wrong with that? Other times, it's a little more formal, usually once or twice a year when we have guests over. (laughs) One of the things that we do as we get ready for our meal and we start, we'll start our time together with prayer and then we'll dish up. But we go around and a lot of times it's youngest to oldest or whoever reminds us that we're going to do this. But we start off with what we call highs and lows. What that is, it's just really a platform for us to create conversation with our kids. They'll go around each one of them thinking about their day, thinking about their week, thinking about the things that have taken place. And they'll, they'll highlight the different parts of their week that have really troubled them, that have bothered them. A lot of times in our house, it has to do with homework, the amount of homework that they have or the weather that it's too cold for them to go outside and ride their bike or any, any number of things that they're tired or that their sister colored on the wrong Barbie's hair and instead of using an Expo marker, used a Sharpie marker and now it's permanent and that one present she got two months ago is never going to come back. That may or may not have happened this week. <laughs> but on the back end of sharing all of the things that happen that are lows, we always talk about the things that we're excited about, the highs, the things that are going right or well or good. And it creates this amazing platform for conversation. Today, as we pick up in one of the final weeks of an amazing journey throughout the book of John, the gospel of John, we find the disciples in Jesus in a setting not too dissimilar to this. Now, they weren't in the middle of a worship center in Blair, Nebraska, eating Cheerios using almond milk because they were lactose intolerant. But they were sitting around the table during the Passover festival, the Passover feast, the Passover meal, and they were having more than a meal. They were having an incredible conversation. And in that conversation, several things unfold that quickly become lows for the disciples that also lead to highs. Now you ask, what are some of the lows? What are some of the things that during this amazing feast, this celebration that could have been going on that would have been considered lows for them? Well, I'm going to give you three today as we start off. Before we jump into those three, let me encourage you to grab your Bible and turn to the book of John, the gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to raise your hand. One of my friends who's up front right now would love to gift you a Bible. Just raise your hand indicating that you'd like one. And this Bible is a gift from us, Reach Church, to you. We do want to encourage you each and every week to come and bring a Bible with you, something to write on and to write with as well. We're going to be in John chapter 14, and we're going to look at seven verses together today, verses 1 through 7. But as we jump into, or before we jump into, John 14 verse 1, I want to help us understand the culture and context because we say it all the time here at Reach Church, the more we understand culture and context, the better able we are to apply it to our lives. Jesus is on the final hours of his life and ministry with the disciples 
this side of eternity. Jesus has gone throughout the region of Galilee, Asia Minor, performing miracles, signs, and wonders, giving unbelievable, unrecognizable teachings, ministering to the hearts and the needs of the people. And the reason that we studied the gospel of John, though it's one of four parts of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is really a little more unique in that he uses some concrete understandings through conversations, through signs or miracles, and through I am teachings of Jesus. And in these I am teachings of Jesus, much like the miracles and the critical conversations that Jesus has, these I am teachings will help us understand all the more the person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the passions of Jesus. So Jesus now has done life and ministry with 12 guys. These are guys that had everyday ordinary jobs, that had families that had grown up in the community that Jesus called to leave their vocation and to abandon their daily lives as they knew them to follow Jesus. As they partnered with Jesus in life and ministries, they followed Jesus, they, they learned, but they also observed, and they also got to participate in these amazing miracles of Jesus, this amazing ministry of Jesus. Now they're together in what we know as the Passover meal, the celebration, not, not uncommon. Jesus and his disciples, though, they're in an upper room. And as they're in this upper room, Jesus is going to give three things that would have been considered lows for the disciples. The first, the first is Jesus is going to introduce to them that he is about to die. Now, can we all collectively agree that anytime someone tells us that they're about to die, especially if we're close to them, that that would be considered a low? Or when we lose somebody close to us, that's a low? Absolutely. The second low that takes place over the course of this conversation is Jesus is going to address the disciples collectively, and he's going to point out that one of them, one of their own, one of the 12 amongst the 13, including Jesus, is actually going to turn his back on Jesus. He's going to sell him out. And in the midst of that conversation, while they begin to inquire of each other who it could be, Jesus actually serves Judas Iscariot this Passover meal, and he lets him know, it's you, go do what you have committed to doing. And the third thing that takes place that could be considered a low over the course of the meal that they're having together is Jesus is going to talk about all that he's going to encounter and experience in Peter. Oh, I love Peter. Peter's high energy. Peter, a lot of times, is a verbal processor. He'll say things before really thinking all the way through what he's actually saying. Peter, he's a, he's a man of action. And he stands up and he tells Jesus, look, Jesus, wherever you go, I'll go. I'm going to follow you. And Jesus is going to bring an end to his assertion by saying, Peter, not only will you not go, but before the day is done tomorrow, you will deny me three separate times. We can see without even diving in, that culturally and contextually, those would be some pretty low points. But today, we're going to focus on the high as well as the low. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Let's begin our time in prayer. Father, as we dive in today to another opportunity to explore your truth, I pray that your word would become alive, that we would become active as fully devoted followers of Jesus. Use this time, redeem it for your glory. 
I pray, Lord, that I would preach with accuracy and with authenticity in a way that matters and that makes sense. Help us, Lord, to be more than hearers of the word, but to be doers also. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift that is holy unto you alone, Lord. Amen. Verse 1, Jesus has just set the stage with these three lows, and then he's going to introduce the high. Verse 1 tells us, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This is a plural usage of the word hearts, and hearts is not actually talking about the, the muscle or the organ that we have in our chest that provides blood flow throughout our body. The word heart here literally is talking specifically about three different things, our mind, our will, and our emotions. It is to be understood as the inner being or the innermost part of an individual. Now, they use the word cardia or heart as an important part of the organ of the body that provides life, that provides this flow, this overflow of blood so that we can sustain life. But when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he is not talking about the organ of the heart. He is talking about their innermost being, their mind, their will, and their emotions. This is the most inner part of who they are. And he is talking now plural. He's talking now collectively to each and every one of them because Jesus' statements were troubling to them. Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. And it's going to be a radical death. Jesus tells them, one of you is going to disown me. You're going to turn your back on me. Jesus tells them, Peter, you're going you're to deny me three separate times. And we can see that any one of these things is reason or cause enough to be troubled, but each one of these collectively would be overwhelming. And so Jesus is going to talk about their hearts being troubled. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. I want to talk about something that is really sensitive in our culture today, and it's what we do with mental health. It's what we think about mental health and well-being. Jesus addresses it head on. Jesus is going to call to the table anxiety. The original language Greek that is used here for troubled is fear or anxiety. And here's what I want us to understand about anxiety. Anxiety is always based on circumstances and systems, but God has an answer. God's answer is his sovereignty. Let me explain that again. Anxiety is always based on our circumstances and on our systems. What do I mean by that? Our circumstances lead us. Now, they don't cause us. They don't force us. But they lead us to respond or to feel a certain way about the circumstance. It also has an impact on our system. It has an impact on the way we think. It has an impact on our, on our, on our vital system. If you've ever seen a study on somebody who's stressed out, they'll actually do stress tests where they'll put their body under tremendous amount of stress and they'll, they'll monitor their vitals, their heart rate, they'll monitor their blood pressure, they'll monitor all sorts of output that is a byproduct of the human system. Anxiety impacts or has an effect on our circumstances or our systems. It's based on these things. But what is God's answer for anxiety? 
What is God's answer for fear? What does he tell them? He says, in light of your anxiety, in light of your fear, trust God and trust also in me. That word trust, it's, a, it's an entire, it's a complete. It's with everything you've got, give it to me. Let me carry that burden. What he's saying is, rather than giving, giving yourself over to your circumstances or your human system, trust that I am God and I am sovereign. What does that word sovereign mean? It means to have greater authority or greater power. When God talks about his sovereignty, when we are, are learning about the sovereignty of God, what we are to understand is that God's power, that God's omniscience, that his presence, that his purpose, that his authority is greater than anything this world has ever known. So what God is saying is he's, he's not chastising the disciples for feeling anxious. He's not making them feel bad about themselves for having fear or, or experiencing anxiety. That's not what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, shame on you for having anxiety. How dare you have, have, have fear? He, he doesn't take this opportunity to make them feel bad about their circumstances that led them to this emotional response. Jesus doesn't take advantage of the circumstance to talk about how they're full of fear. But he meets them in the middle of this moment and he assures them that God's sovereignty is greater than the anxiousness of their circumstances or their human system. So what do we do then, friends, when we deal with anxiety? I want to share something with you that I've never shared here in my four years as the pastor of this church. I understand anxiety. And not just an intellectual understanding, I have been in the hospital three times in my life with full-blown panic attacks, where my body was overwhelmed, where I was losing clumps of hair. It's all gone now. <laughs> where my heart was in tachycardia and I could not get it under 160 beats a minute. My heart rate averages around 54 beats a minute. It jumped to 160 and would not level off. My mind, irrational thoughts. Crazy things. My wife, Stacy, had to take me to the hospital two of the three times. I drove myself one of the three times. Now, now, why, Andrew, why do you have anxiety? I'm glad you asked. By the grace of God, I haven't had a panic attack or an anxiety attack in 10 years, but I have what is known as medically induced anxiety. Some people call it white coat syndrome. I can have something that happens to me phys physiologically, and, and, and before you know it, I have just died 17 different ways. But Andrew, you just sneezed. Where does that come from? Well, August 19th, 12 years ago, I had a stroke. The stroke was a fluke. I had an ingrown toenail from years and years and years of abuse on my feet through wrestling and football, wearing improper shoes and it got infected. They put me on an antibiotic. The antibiotic caused a horrible reaction throughout my body. I went to the hospital, to the emergency room. They put me on six different medications, a different antibiotic. They put me on a, a, a steroid, an a IV drip of Benadryl. They put me on a, a, a different type of antihistamine. They put me on a, a pain pill, and they put me on a sleeping pill. Well, those six pills, that cocktail caused my veins to spasm, and it created a blood clot. 
that blood clot traveled throughout my body, through my heart, and it went up to the back of my brain, the lower left cerebellum. And I had a stroke. Prior to age 30, I thought I was invincible. I had no kryptonite. There was Superman, but then there was me. And when I had this unexplained stroke, it was unexplained at the time, and I had absolutely no control over what was happening to me. The craziest things happened. The first time I ever had a full-blown panic attack, I was in Oregon with my wife. It was about a year later. We were out at the park, and I was riding with my window down, and my elbow was sitting on the window. Well, it was really dry, which is really uncommon in Oregon, but in the same day, within hours of it, I ended up with a bloody nose, dry capillaries from the, 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 air, uh, the, the air, and I, my arm went to sleep. Well, it turns out that when you rest your arm on a metal piece of uh, door frame for long periods of time, your nerve will end up doing crazy things. What did I think? I thought I was having another stroke. So my wife rushed me to the hospital. They ran an EKG on me, did a, all kinds of tests on me, and said, other than being a hypochondriac, you're fine. <laughs> Do you know that in all of those things, even in my human emotion and my human understanding, do you know what I never experienced from God was condemnation. God never met me in the middle of my madness and said, how dare you have that emotional response? But I was reminded all the more that God's sovereignty was greater than my circumstance or my human system. Friends, I want you to understand that Anxiety is real. Depression is real. And there are times that it's circumstantial, but then there are other times where the brain, it just misfires. A, that doesn't quite connect with B, and, and, and it creates this system in us that leads us to fear and anxiety, no matter how rational or irrational it may be. But the answer that God gives us, and I do not mean to sound trite because I've wrestled with this for 12 years the answer that God gives us when we understand all the more the person, the purpose, and the passion of God, of Jesus, is look, anxiety is caused by your circumstances and your surroundings. But God is sovereign over all things. And we're going to talk about that today. I believe with all my heart right now that somebody here this morning, that may be the only word that God had for you to hear this morning. That it's okay that you're, you're struggling with your anxiety and your fear and your depression. But the hope that you need to hear is you don't have to stay that way. This is Jesus giving an imperative. This is Jesus giving a directive. Jesus is literally telling the disciples, you have a choice in the matter. Now, you may not have a choice in your circumstances. You may not even have a choice in your system, in your human system. But you do have a choice where it comes to what you will do with what you have. And when we trust God is sovereign, he's greater than our circumstances and our system. So here, Jesus says, guys, I know you're upset because I told you I'm going to die. I know you're upset because I told you somebody is going to betray me. And I know you're upset because I just called Peter out to the carpet and told him he's going to deny me three times. But here's the deal. Don't be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Verse 2. There is more than enough room in my father's home. Now, this is the hope. This is the high. This is where things 
This is where things get really great. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Now, I want to share just a couple of things briefly about what we just read in this text. Because it's been misapplied. How many of you have ever heard that, that in heaven there are many, many mansions? Have you heard that? Anybody ever heard that? It's been, there, there are songs. There's actually a translation of the Bible that, that says that there are many, many mansions. That's, that's not at all what culturally and contextually Jesus is talking about. You see, the way it worked is the way that my wife hopes that it will work for us. Let me explain. My wife's dream and desire is that we will be able to save up enough money through going through financial learning experience, paying off all of our debt, putting money aside, that we'll be able to buy 50 acres. And on the 50 acres, that we will be able to create the Anderson compound. And on the Anderson compound, we will build our house, little house on the prairie. And then from there, every one of our children will be able to build their homes on our compound, preferably attached to ours, but at least within visual distance. All right, anybody else? Anybody else have that? Nobody else? Okay, that means that your kids have left the house and you came to reality. <laughs> My wife would love it if our kids just, if we just added on to the home and, and, and created a constant family where we, they got married, but they were all a part of the big collective family. Well, that sounds great because that's exactly culturally what the Jewish community would do. There was the family home, and then as the children were married off, they would add on rooms to the house. Sometimes, if they were nomadic, they would literally add on tent-like material and just create a larger tent for the family. Some of you think that sounds horrible because it does. <laughs> I don't know if they're watching, but this would not be the time for me to tell you that that would not include my in-laws or even my parents. <laughs> I will help them find a forever home. I'm just kidding, mostly. <laughs> Jesus, nowhere in Scripture does it say there are many, many mansions. What it says is there are many, many rooms. Now, some, some people want to argue about what Jesus actually meant by rooms, that he wasn't really talking about heaven. The problem with that is that there's no disputing the word that Jesus, you can't replace it with any other word. The word that Jesus uses here, the descriptor, literally means house, place of rest, place of residency. It can't mean anything else other than this is the place that we will dwell. This will be our dwelling. This will be our property. This is where we will, will live. Jesus has set the stage and there's a lot of lows, but now he's going to give a high to the disciples. He said, there is more than enough room in my father's home. They know collectively what this means. Now you do too. They see this bigger collective family that's growing and we all have a place in the house and at the table. Jesus says, if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Now, we also can take this out of context and think that this means that Jesus is up on the heavenly cloud and he's got the, 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 the concrete, the mortar, that the, he's building walls for us, that he's sweeping, he's getting everything ready. That's not at all what this is talking about. This is actually where heaven and earth collide. This is where heaven and earth collide. In order for Jesus to prepare a place for us, what did he have to do? He had to die for us. Jesus was saying, I am going to the cross. I am going to Calvary. I am going to Golgotha. I am going to die the most egregious sinner's death, though I myself am sinless, so that I can prepare a place for you. In other words, I am going to be the substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Substitutionary means in place. Atonement means to make right the wrongs. 
prior to this, there was an Old Testament law and a system that was in place where the people would have to atone for their sins in a variety of ways. They would have different offerings and gifts that they would bring. They would have different sacrifices that they would make. They relied on the Levites and the priest and the Levitical high priest to be an ambassador for them, to be a mediator for them. But Jesus, what Jesus does by going to the cross, dying once and for all, for all, is he is a substitutionary atonement. And because Jesus did this on our behalf, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into your hands I commit my soul. What Jesus did effectively in that moment is he prepared a place for you and for me to enter into eternity without having to experience what Jesus took on for us. So now he set the table for us. They understand this collective community, this communal living. And Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm going to do something that only I am capable of doing. No matter what you try to do, you cannot outdo what has already been done. Jesus goes on in verse 3. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And again, if we're not careful to really study culture and context, we can, we can make that almost read like Jesus is up there and he's, he's just straightening out the decorations on the wall and he's preparing the, 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 the pillows and he's putting mints on every one of the pillows and making sure that there's a, there's a in, the, in, the, in the Lamb's Book of Life, that there's a pecking order and we, we know, all right, so when they come, these are the, the jewels that they're going to get in their crowns and he's establishing, all, oh, okay, so positionally this is what they're going to do, this is where they're going to be. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. It's not like we're in this resting period or this waiting period while Jesus does what he has to do on the supernatural other side. What Jesus is literally referring to is you and me. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the last thing Jesus tells the disciples in Acts 1.8? But you will be my witnesses, my ambassadors, my spokesperson. You will have a part in the ministry. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to every single corner of this world. So what is Jesus talking about when he's referring to preparing a place for us? He's referring to this place in time where he has appointed and instructed us to take the gospel to every corner of the world to share the gospel, the good news message of Jesus Christ. There is a process that we are a part of. It's not a waiting game. It's not like we, 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 we arrive when we get there, we, 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 we get the award, and we just hold on until the end to, to really experience the fullness of that reward. Let me, let me tell you, friends, I praise God, and I hope my wife Stacy would agree to this. I am a I'm at least different, but hopefully a better husband 18 years. This, this month is our 18th anniversary. 18 years than I was 18 years ago. I didn't get married to her and say, hey, Stacy, uh, you know, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And uh, I can't wait till we get to the other side. And then just sit back on my laurels expecting that our marriage was going to be strong. I've had to put in some work. She's had to put in a lot more work. And we added kids to the equation, and that changes the game. Where was that in pre-marriage counseling? <laughs> We've had to work in our marriage. Not that we're any less or any more married, 
but we've had a responsibility where being married is concerned. And in our faith, it's not like we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and we just sit back on our laurels waiting for Jesus to come back. We've got a responsibility. When everything is ready, I will come back. In other words, when everyone has had the opportunity to hear the gospel, when I, when, I have, when I have watched and been a part of, I will come back and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, he's, he's talking about something that's really unique here that we're not going to catch up front. I want you to hold on to this just as we introduce this topic, though. He's, he's going to talk about, he's going to use a, 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 a parallel on words or a play on words from location or geography to the person, all right? He says, and you know, verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, in Jewish culture and in Jewish literature, whenever you would read the way, it's no different than having Siri pull up options for directions. What route do you want to go? Do you want to take the fastest route? Do you want to avoid construction? Do you want to avoid traffic? And then there are two options with Siri that can give you a voice directions and instructions most of the time before you're supposed to take the term. Or you can simply select a part of the screen and it will drop down and give you the directions. That is what is intended to be understood here in this context. When we see the way, it means that there was clear directions given. All the guesswork was taken out. He said, and you know the way to where I'm going. Now look at verse 5. I love Thomas. We talked a little bit about Thomas last week. I love it here again. Verse 5. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? How many of us in our infancy or in our innocence or in our ignorance and hard-headedness still try to keep an infinite God in a finite box so that we can somehow be comfortable with God. And we, and I, I throw myself in the we, we view the holy word of God through 2020, 21st century American culture. Tell me I'm wrong. We, we, look at, we look at God through the lens of humanity, and that is, that is what we use to build our theology. That is what we use to build our understanding. The problem with that is we serve an infinite God, and we live in a finite world. So Thomas, who has known Jesus intimately for three years, who has traveled with Jesus, heard his teachings, been a part of his miracles, signs, and wonders, Jesus is having this radical conversation with him about the way, the directions to where they're going, and he's looking at Jesus through the cultural landscape of the, the things that Jesus is saying, and he's creating for himself a, geog a geographical understanding, if you were, to what Jesus is saying. He says, Jesus, no... You didn't tell us where it's at. I, I don't understand. You're telling me you know where, where, where I'm going, but you didn't give us the instructions. Like, at least in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias encounters the Lord during Saul's conversion, the Lord appears to Ananias and he said, my brother Saul on Straight Street is there and he's waiting for you. So Ananias at least knew directionally where he was supposed to go and who he was supposed to see. Thomas here is saying, Jesus, we don't even know what you're talking about. You didn't tell us where to go. Now look at this transition from place 
into person. Jesus, Jesus told him in verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he just said in a resounding confidence and clarity as they're viewing everything through their own cultural lenses and landscape, as they know that Jewish literature and language, when they use the words the way together, insinuates that they have clear directions outlined for where they are traveling. They all know that. The guesswork is not, is not in consideration here. Jesus now says, I am the way. What he just told the disciples, I'm the direction. I'm the one who's going to lead you. I'm the one who's going to give you clarity about where to go and what that looks like. I am the way. Now, there's a second understanding here that we can't miss. Many of us understand the difference between monotheism and polytheism. Poly meaning many, mono meaning one. And in this culture, much like the culture that we're in today, we're surrounded by polytheism. We're surrounded by atheism. We're surrounded by agnosticism. We're surrounded by all kinds of things. There are all kinds of ideas and understandings about God and eternity and life after death and, and, and all that goes into that. And if we're not careful, we're influenced by these ideologies that surround us. That's no different than what the disciples would have been dealing with. I mean, for centuries... They were turning to false idols, but all different gods and goddesses to give direction to their lives. And what Jesus says in this moment, I am God, capital G God. All of the other ways are little G God. They're little deities. They're posers. They're pranksters. They're wangsters. They're wannabes. They're, they're not even has-beens. They never were. I am God. I am the way. And I will show you the way. Jesus is saying there's not multiple ways to heaven. There is one way to this eternal life that I've just told you about. And I am the way. And we don't have to look at that as though it's ambiguous. Jesus says it's not ambiguous. How do we know that he says it's not ambiguous? Because we know that culturally the way means that there is clear directions given that help you arrive at the desired destination. When Jesus says, I am the way, he is telling them there is one way, I am the way, and I am going to give you clear cut directions on how to get there. Check this out. He says, I am the truth. What does he mean by truth? He means that it's authentic. It's not like the other posers that I was just referencing a moment ago. And I am the life. When they think about life, they think about the things that you and I think about. Breath in our lungs, blood through our veins, the things that give us sustenance, things that are enjoyable. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he makes it even more clear. 
as though he wasn't clear enough, he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Verse 7 is where it gets really interesting about Jesus calling himself the way. Look at verse 7. And I would encourage you actually to highlight this. If you had really known me, like really, really, really known me, you would know who my, who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What? What? Imagine what's running through the minds of the disciples that have just spent three years, 36 months of their lives with Jesus, 156 weeks. They know Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, the one who has performed unprecedented miracles. I mean, he made blind people to see. He made deaf people to hear. He made lame people to walk. He made mute people to speak. Oh, did I forget to mention he, he raised the dead back to life? Yeah, they knew Jesus. They knew about Jesus' teachings. This is one of four major discourses throughout Scripture that we have from Jesus. The first one is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Radical, the most popular sermon ever preached. The, the second discourse is what is known as the parable of the kingdom. Where Jesus will go on in front of a large audience and he'll go on to explain in multiple ways, in many fashions, what the kingdom of God is like. The, the third one is what is known as the Olivet Discourse or the Mount of Olives Discourse, where Jesus will go on and he'll talk about end times, things that are coming that they need to look out for and look forward to. And then here and now, this is the fourth discourse where Jesus sits with his disciples and, and through multiple conversations, more than a meal, Jesus is going to, he's going to teach them in a radical fashion. They know Jesus. They, they know his miracles. They, they know Jesus. They know his teachings. They, they know Jesus. They've, they've sat around the campfire with, with him. They've been in boats with him. They know Jesus. So what in the world could he mean? And, and, and how offensive, how offensive must that have been to hear that? If you really knew me, if you really knew me, Can I be honest about most marriages? In most marriages, we don't really know our spouse because we're too busy superimposing on them what we think they think. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, some of you have a spouse that has no problem telling you what they think and what you think. But the number of times in my own marriage where I've gotten it wrong because I was superimposing what I thought, she, it happened yesterday. She looked at me exasperated and Stacy said, are you going to let me finish? And I said, well, how long is it going to take you to get to the point? <laughs> it didn't go over well. 
That really happened. We were sitting at the light headed toward Omaha. Uh, we were sitting by my friend Ronnie's uh, owns Anytime Fitness. There's U.S. Bank and Anytime Fitness. I mean, we turned left there and I said that. It was quiet for a few minutes. <laughs> Is it possible that the disciples were doing this? Is it possible that we do the same thing? That we don't really know Jesus because we're too busy superimposing on him what we think he means, what we think he said, and what we think he ought to do? We know because we grew up with this. It's one of the oldest cereals around. We know this color. We know this box. We know, we, we know the commercials. Every one of us, I mean, probably most people in here have tried Cheerios before. You know what Cheerios is about. You know that this is a bowl and that this is a spoon. You do. You have a working knowledge and you know, you probably think this is gross, but once you've switched, it's a much better option than milk. I've never liked milk. But for you other people in here, I might be the only one who's lactose intolerant. Not lactose insensitive, like lactose, you don't want to be near me for three weeks if I get milk. We know that if we take the contents from inside this box and dump it into this bowl and use this utensil and pour this liquid over the top of it, that it becomes edible, even delicious, and that it brings sustenance and life to us. Do we not? Can we all mutually agree on that? But what good does having all the head knowledge in the world do for us if we know that this is Cheerios, we know that this is a bowl, we know that that's a utensil, we know that this is a liquid that is going to make it taste better, and we do absolutely nothing with it. Yet our churches are filled with people who know God, but they've never known Jesus. Known. Gnosis. To have personal experience. To, 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 to understand at the greatest level. Gnosis. It's not enough to know God. We, 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 we have to understand that it's not just enough to know about God. It's not enough to know about the things of God. What he calls us to, what he calls us to this side of eternity and, and into the next is that we take and we create a working knowledge. We take what God has provided for us and we actually apply it. We use it in our lives. We pour it out. Some of you OCD people, that's going to affect you, and so I will take care of that right now. <laughs> You're welcome. Now you know. Alicia Lorenz, our creative arts director who I work for, uh, told me to be really careful about the bite that I took. She said, don't take a bite like you would normally take. You're going to be there a while. Guys, listen to me. It's not enough to simply know what it is. We need to apply what we know so we get the full experience. A little bit too big. <laughs> and listen. Look at my mind sentimentally. And using the senses that God is blessing me with, touch, taste, sight, smell, sound. I knew going into this what I expected. But it pales in comparison to the real thing. What good does it do if you understand that Jesus is the way, 
the truth, and the life. But you don't live in that knowledge. You don't proactively, proactively live in that knowledge and in that understanding. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you know that, the very first sentence I said about fear and anxiety, that anxiety is based on our surroundings and our circumstances, but that God is sovereign. When you live in the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that statement makes a lot more sense. There's some of you who have been looking from the outside in and you've got a working knowledge, a head knowledge. Heck, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be shocked at all. There are some of you who, who have a better understanding of the Bible in this room today than me. Than, than me. I've never prided myself on how much I know, but how much I do with what I do know. And Jesus makes it absolutely known that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one gets to the Father except through him. And that if you really know him, you know the Father. So how do we get to know the Father? How do we get to really know Jesus? So glad you asked. Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Hebrews. Those of you here today, those of you watching online, one of the tools, one of the resources, one of the platforms that God has given us to really know him is through experiencing life and ministry together. Why? Because we were all created in God's image. Every one of us is image bearers. And so when I do life and ministry with you, I'm learning more about my maker because you you are in the image of the maker and you're learning more about your maker because I'm, I'm in the image of our maker. And when we come together collectively, we get to encourage each other in our faith. What else? We can really know God through reading his word. Through reading his word. And I don't mean coming to church on Sunday. I didn't mean to do this, but this really works. And having me spoon feed you. Come here. Come here. It's okay. Too big. There you go. Here you go, Lisa. Somehow my son's like this. Like I, I can't even do it. It's like a backhoe. Him and Steve Doolin eat a bowl of Chipotle in about three minutes flat. I barely get the lid off. It's insane. Listen, knowing Jesus isn't me spoon feeding you every Sunday patting you on the back so that you make sure you get all the indigestion out and so you feel good about your week. Knowing Jesus is getting into his word. What does he say? What did he demonstrate? What did he do? What does he call you and I to do? And Jesus takes all the guesswork out. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of clarity. You want to know, you want to know what it means to really know Jesus? Get in his word. How about prayer? And prayer is not the proverbial magic genie where you rub the bottle and tell Jesus what you want. Prayer is an intimate relationship where you get to know Jesus and you, you, you lean in to the Holy Spirit and you pray and then you shut up long enough to listen. Let him speak to your heart. That's how you can really know. And then doing. James tells us not to be merely hearers of the word, but doers. Sean, let me grab, grab, grab one of those cards for me. Thank you. This fall cleanup... This will not make you any more saved, 
But you know what it will do? It will demonstrate your salvation. By coming together to participate collectively in changing the face of our community in a way that is tangible for them, you get to work collectively side by side with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You get to get to know them. You get a really cool free t-shirt. And you get to serve this community at large. This is another way of getting to really know Jesus by serving the least of these, the orphans and the widows, because he's called us to do that. We're called to put our knowledge to work, to put our knowledge into action. So, highs and lows. Highs and lows. Oh, this week? Can we be honest? There's just the lows are piling up. How many of you are so, don't raise your hand and don't even say a word, but just can't wait for the elections to be over? If I see one more commercial during the middle of a football game, so help me. (laughs) The lows are all around us. You don't have to spend more than 30 seconds on social media or any news platform or the television to realize that there are a lot of things that are low right now. And you can either allow that low to create fear and anxiety in you because of the circumstances and the systems, or you can apply the working word of God and allow his life to create the greatest high in you that the world will ever know. So, Father, that's my prayer. The worship team's gonna come out right now. And as they do, we're gonna pray. Lord, that's my prayer, that we would truly and honestly come to know you. Thank you so much for your word, for these few moments that we've had together. Thank you for your transformative power. God, I thank you that you tell us, you take all the guesswork out, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters that are in this place They may have had a working knowledge of you, but have never fully surrendered their life to you. They've been caught up in the anxiety of their circumstances and their their systems, but they've never known you as a sovereign Lord of all creation. That today would be the day of reckoning where they would surrender their lives to you. Where they would say, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. I'm all yours. Jesus, I thank you that you went and you prepared a place in advance by dying on the cross in my place. I admit that I'm a sinner and that that death was was meant for me. I confess my sins to you. I turn from those sins and I want all in. I don't want just a working knowledge of you or a head knowledge of you, but I want a working knowledge of you. Father, all that I am, all that I am, all that I am is yours. If that's, the, if that's the desire of your heart this morning, simply say amen. And God knows the desires of your hearts. And if you today commit your life to Jesus, I want to know you. I want to celebrate that with you. It's the greatest decision anyone will ever make. To not only understand, but to Accept that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, and that you can live a full life and with great anticipation and expectation for for what's to come. Father, for us as a church, 
thank you for how you're moving in us. I thank you for this opportunity we've had to learn from your word today. May we as a collective body of believers live out of our faith in you for your glory and until your return. In Jesus' name.